The following is a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information about the seminary, how you can support it, or applying to become a student, please visit www.gpts.edu. Hello and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. My name is Zach Groff, and I'm the host of the podcast, as well as Director of Advancement and Admissions here at the seminary, an MDiv student under care of Calvary Presbytery of the PCA. Today I have with me in the studio Dr. Barry York, the president of the Reformed Presbyterian Theological Seminary, and if you listen through the entire podcast, you may just receive a gift. Dr. York, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me on, Zach. After more than two decades in church planting with the Reformed Presbyterian Church in North America, Dr. York became the Professor of Pastoral Theology and Dean of Faculty at RPTS in Pittsburgh. Last year, he assumed the presidency of the seminary. He has his Doctor of Ministry from Reformed Theological Seminary. He serves as an elder, writes regularly for the blog Gentle Reformation, co-hosts the 3GT podcast, and is the general editor of the Reformed Presbyterian Theological Journal. Dr. York resides in Beaver, Pennsylvania with his wife, Miriam. Today, we will be discussing his his new book, Hitting the Marks, Restoring the Essential Identity of the Church, published last year by Crown and Covenant Publications, the publishing house of the RPCNA, who is making available a couple copies of the book for free to listeners of this podcast. I'll tell you how to how to get in on those free copies towards the end of the podcast, so make sure you listen through all the way to the end. In the book, Dr. York draws from Scripture to present Christ's definition of the Church and its three essential identification marks. In so doing, he provides helpful answers to perennially relevant questions that he has graciously agreed to address in today's interview. But before we get to some of those questions, a really basic one. For whom did you write this book? Who's your target audience, Dr. York? Well, it's really for the people of God, uh, for those uh, lay people serving in congregations, as well as for the pastors and elders who lead them. Great. I think that includes probably everybody listening to this podcast right now. Other than Scripture, what would you say were your main sources from which you were drawing for the book? Well, I really began in my studies to look at uh, Martin Bootser and his uh, work uh, concerning the true care of souls and his view of the church, and because he really begins to develop the whole idea of the eldership and the need for ordained officers to be over the church. Of course, he had a tremendous influence on John Calvin, who arrived uh, there in Strasbourg with him the year that book was published and spent three years there learning about pastoral ministry from Bootser. And as he went back to Geneva and continued his work on the institutes, uh, I believe you see that reflected there. Uh, I then, so I looked at Calvin, and then I looked into the confessions, because the great confessions that came out of the European nations and the British Isles were highly influenced by uh, Calvin. And it's really there that you begin to see uh, the reformers really in response to the Roman Catholic Church uh, saying what the true church, what its visible marks are. Uh, the Catholic Church is, uh, is seen pretty clearly in the uh, Council of Trent documents. Uh, they saw the church being marked by the four qualities out of the Nicene Creed, oneness, holy, holiness, Catholicity, and apostolicity. And so I looked at the, the, the Catholic documents, but what they did with those four qualities was trace them all back uh, to the papal throne. And of course, the reformers didn't want anything to do with that, so to speak. They didn't deny that those, of course, are attributes of the church, but they said that they weren't sufficient 
to really look at a group of God's of people claiming to be God's people, a, a group of people claiming to follow Christ, and say whether or not uh, that group is truly a congregation of His people or not. So the confessions were very influential, and then I looked at uh, particularly Turretin, because in his work he really I think he has the clearest uh, exposition of the marks and explanation for God's people. So. Those would be my chief uh, sources. And your goal in the book is really to explore three main identification marks of the church. And looking over your table of contents, it's pretty clear to me that you are dividing the book into three parts, corresponding to each of those three marks of the church that you introduce in the first chapter. For the sake of our listeners who might be a bit newer to the Reformed tradition and unfamiliar with this vocabulary, quote, the marks of the church, end quote, can you tell us what are those three marks? So the Reformers, as they were looking at this, uh, what's the definition of uh, the church, uh, they, they began to highlight, uh, central to it all, the primary mark is you have to have the true preaching of God's Word, that it really starts there. And if the gospel's not being preached, the whole counsel of God's not being preached, uh, then you really can't call that a, 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 a gathering of God's people. Uh, because we're talking about the visible church, uh, congregations of God's people here in this world, then the second mark were those visible signs that Jesus gave uh, to the church, which would be the, the sacraments. So the second mark of the church is the right administration of the sacraments of a baptism, which initiates someone into the church, and then the Lord's Supper, which is the ongoing meal the church remembers so that we are celebrating this gospel that has saved us. And then the third mark that I think got developed more fully over time through uh, the writings of the Reformers and the, conf uh, the confessions would be the faithful administration of uh, faithful practice of church discipline that you have to ensure that the people who are gathered are really following what Jesus told them to do. Our great command is to make disciples. And as I looked at that, uh, so often when we hear that word discipline, I'm sure we'll talk more about it in a, in a moment, but so often when we hear that word discipline, we're thinking about the corrective official acts of the church. But really, the Reformers meant more than that. It certainly included that, and that's a part and parcel of it. But it also included the more positive side, the, the, the formative side of discipline, that the church really has a responsibility to help the people follow uh, Christ in obedience to the Word of God. So those are the three marks. and. Uh, preaching, sacraments, and discipline is the easy way to remember it. Shortly after my wife and I were wed, we moved into a house and then determined that it was necessary for us to consider a congregation a bit closer to us than the one in which we met. And I distinctly remember there being a lacuna in popular Christian literature on how to evaluate or choose a church. I think the only real helpful resource I found at the time was something written by John MacArthur, a sermon or a blog post, and it was really basic, not bad, just really basic. The only thing I remember from it is that he directed his readers to go to a church that preaches the Word. Well, I knew that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Instinctively, I looked for a church with a good denominational pedigree, a high view of Scripture, solid doctrinal standards, preaching of the Word, and reflection of the local community in its membership. But I was fairly new to Reformed theology at the time, and a book like this, what you've written, Hitting the Marks, would have been very helpful to me. 
In any case, I think that many people who are in the midst of a move look at church activities and choosing a congregation to visit and don't necessarily think through those essential marks or identifiers. How much do church activities actually reveal about the church's character? Well, I think you're describing, of course, an experience many people have. And um, one of the reasons that I wrote, and not the only reason, was the fact that as a church planter, um, especially in the early days, people would come to our church, even sometimes people who moved into our community who had been involved in a Reformed congregation before. And when you started talking with them and exploring with them what they were really looking for and some of the decisions that they were making, it often wasn't based on the marks of the church. It was on other things like a like a youth group. or you know, On one case, uh, we were renting a facility and one family just wanted to be in a more permanent church building. And so I think it is important for people to understand uh, why the marks are essential. And um, one of the things in my in my study that I really saw in, in Martin Luther, again, who also had influence uh, in these people I mentioned, uh, uh, it seems from church history that after his interaction with uh, Luther, Martin Bootser was converted. Um, so he was really influenced by Luther. In one of uh, some of his writings, Luther talks about what he calls the holy possessions of the church, that we have to see the connection between pneumatology or the study of the spirit and ecclesiology or the study of the church. And Luther saw that where the spirit is truly present among God's people, there are going to be certain qualities or what he called holy possessions that you would find there. And you really begin to look at that. And though in Luther's writings as an early reformer, he was he would list like seven holy possessions that were central. When you really look at what he was writing and see the connection between some of those holy possessions, you really begin to see emerging from that uh, what we now see as the marks of the church, that if the Spirit of God is with a group of people, then it's going to be a place where you're going to see the Word of God being taught and listened to. Uh, From that then is also going to emerge the present of the the sign of the pres- the Spirit's presence in the sacraments uh, being properly uh, administered. And you're going to see people living holy because he's the Holy Spirit. And so I think that's really uh, necessary and essential. But what I try to point out in the book that though those are the central core qualities, that doesn't mean that the church doesn't have other attributes or other activities that she's to be about. There are many things that we see in the scripture the church is to be doing. She's to be giving, uh, ministering to the poor, doing evangelism, and having fellowship, all those types of things. But those are to be connected to and right relationship with the central core things. And so often what you see um, that I think is a problem in modern, particularly modern American culture, is that we're so individualistically oriented that we're always looking at what will this church do for me? And so we go looking for things that really should be more peripheral matters and making them core and taking the core things that Jesus says are to be present in his church and we push them to the to the periphery and, and don't give them the value that they should have. And so part of the reason of writing this book is to 
really bring back to the church's consciousness. These are the things that need to be first and foremost in your thinking before you consider other things. It is important whether a church is serving the poor or doing evangelism. I'm not denying that. But let's make sure that we have first things first. What would you say to the man or woman who is considering moving churches or has moved to a new area, is exploring all the different possibilities for local fellowship with the saints, and has the three marks first and foremost in their minds, but then elevates alongside of them a flashy youth group or a particular style of music? I mean, I know that for the RPCNA, you all only have one style (laughs) of music, and that's commendable, so you don't have to worry about it as much. But what would you say to the man or woman who comes in and says, yes, I believe preaching, sacraments, and church discipline are just as important as evangelism, dynamic youth group, and a choir or praise team? What would you say to that person who elevates other things alongside of the marks? I would say that's the problem, is that you've just now added another mark to the church that Jesus himself hasn't given to us. So this this is all about Jesus, really. Um, One of the things I like to say is that the church has marks because the church has a marker uh, with a capital M. Uh, We're the body. We're the body of Christ, and he is the head. And the reason that we have these marks is because he is to be acknowledged as the head of the church. And one of the things we uphold about Jesus is that he is the offices that he fulfills is that he is our prophet, our priest, and our king. And if you think about it, the marks of the church really correspond with those offices that Jesus holds. He's a prophet. Uh, he's the one who's brought the word of God to us. And so that's why there's such an emphasis on the word of God and a true evangelical uh, congregation. He is a priest. He's the one who gave his very life for us. And that's exactly what the sacraments are representing. Uh, his his uh, shed blood washes us and cleanses us from our sins and gives us, uh, uh, through faith, his Holy Spirit. And that's what baptism represents. We acknowledge his blood every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, his great sacrifice on the cross and his broken body and poured uh, blood. And then um, he's a king. So he rules over his people. And that corresponds to the mark of discipline. And one of the beautiful things about this, and I treat this passage as one of my favorite verses of Scripture, really. Um, I treat this passage in the book as uh, 1 Peter 2.9, where uh, the Apostle Peter takes titles that were given to Old Testament Israel and he applies them to the church. But what does he say the church is now? He says, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood. So there it is. We're royal, we're kings, we're a priesthood, we're priests, a holy nation a people for God's own possession. So we're we're to be seen as those who belong to Jesus Christ. And then what should be resulting out of that is that you might proclaim, the verse goes on to say, that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who's called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So we're we're to be prophetic. We're to be uh, proclaiming that word of God. So we're, we're to be showing forth these marks because we're in union with Christ, our head, and they really represent him. And if they're not there, if they're not present, then it's, I think, really showing a deficiency in our understanding of who Jesus really is. That's excellent. We were created to reflect the glory of God back to him, and that glory has been shined upon us in the grace of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. 
Well, keeping in mind the diagnostic value of the marks of words, sacrament, and discipline, what signs should we look out for that might indicate that a church or even a denomination is drifting away from its scriptural God-given calling? Sometimes you can see it right when you walk into the sanctuary. I, I recall I was at a conference where Robert Godfrey, uh, the president emeritus of Westminster West, was speaking, and he was uh, sharing an anecdote of being at a, a large, large church. Uh, he was teasing us, our peers that our whole denomination could have fit in the choir loft. <laughs> but he was at this, uh, he was at this uh, celebration of an event and sitting there with other dignitaries in the choir loft. And as he looked down upon the platform in front, he noticed the pulpit was pushed way over to one side of the platform and way over on the other side was the, the Lord's table. And filling the stage in front of him was instruments. And he said, just look, you could just look and see what was really important uh, to, this, uh, to this congregation. And so in some ways, you can almost see it when you walk in uh, to the sanctuary, what's important. Of course, in Reformed churches, often what happened was that the pulpit was put back into the center of the sanctuary, often with the, the Lord's uh, table and the baptismal font uh, right in front of it to show that it was a, a ministry of word and sacrament. So even as sanctuary, you can see sometimes this reflected. But of course, that's just in one sense uh, symbolic. I think you you look as you visit churches, uh, what, what emphasis do they really put on the word of God? Um, I think so often, um, so many churches, they're restricting the amount of God's word uh, flowing to God's people. There's not much of the word read in services. Um, so you should really be wanting to go to a place where God's word is really valued. It's read. It's throughout the service where the minister really opens up the word and gives a clear exposition uh, of the word. But it's not only about Sunday morning. Um, when the apostle Paul was describing his pastoral minister ministry in Acts chapter 20 to the Ephesian elders. He talked about how he was constantly admonishing them day and night with tears. He talks about how he was in their homes and in public uh, teaching them the word of God. And so I think a, a true biblical ministry is going to be really uh, saturating uh, the, that ministry with God's word that uh, the minister is pursuing people with it, that he's, whether it's leading Bible studies or teaching classes, that there's just a real word-centeredness to the life of that congregation. I think, too, when it comes to the sacraments, um, I have a, a chapter in the book where before I even treat the sacraments, I really just talk about their value by looking at the blood of Christ, which they represent um, that we would really appreciate the value of what God has done for us. And one of the things in my studies that I, I recognize as I looked at the confessions, particularly whether it was the um, Belgic Confession or you know the catechisms that accompany the Heidelberg Catechism, the Westminster, other ones, you just saw um, just rich devotion and a love even being expressed for the sacraments and what they're representing to the church. And I think that gets reflected in the life of a congregation and the way that they treat them. Do they, do they, uh, um, do they just allow anyone to come? Uh, we've really lost the whole sense of um, that this, the baptism and the Lord's Supper are really for truly professing Christians that have a, 
a real confession of faith and a, at least some fruits of repentance that reflect that. So we need to really see if the church is upholding those and applying them to the right people. Um, and then I think, and this is why when you visit a church, I don't think you can do it just one Sunday unless it's so clear you shouldn't be there. Um, <laughs> uh, but if you're really examining a church, you're going to have to be there for at least a good good month or two to get a real feel for it, I think. And one of the things you have to look at is how do they handle sin? How is sin being handled in this congregation? Um, it's sad to see so many churches just allowing unaddressed sin to dwell in their congregations and, and to see people getting hurt and uh, mistreated and the eldership never really say anything, never really do anything, just kind of ignoring it, hoping it goes away. So I think we really need to see whether people are being faithful uh, to one another, to hold each other accountable. Um, I, I've just said to my students recently, um, you know, some people view joining Sam's Club with more value and more seriousness than they do a, a local church. And so we really need, I think congregations need to really value membership. That's another aspect of all this as well. This month, I had the privilege of taking Dr. Ian Hamilton's Reformed Pastor intensive class here at Greenville Seminary, which he teaches every year in the winter as one of our January intensives. And Dr. Hamilton shared a story with us that really left an impression on my mind because the situation was somewhat ironic in the context of a very serious situation, but also how it illustrates the value of discipline in the marks of the church. This is what it is. He gave us an account of one of the very few instances in his 37 or 38-year-long pastoral ministry when his session had to excommunicate an individual from the fellowship of the church. It happened to be the case that on the Lord's Day, when they held a congregational meeting to discuss with the remaining members of the church what had happened, a young woman was there visiting the church. She didn't realize that she didn't need to remain in the sanctuary after the benediction, so she stayed for the congregational meeting and she heard the session's account of the disciplinary procedure and the excommunication of the individual and why they had to take that action to preserve the honor of Christ, the purity of the church, for the glory of God, and hopefully for the good of the excommunicated individual. And the woman visiting was weeping. Now, at this point, as Dr. Hamilton was telling us a story, my classmates and I are thinking, oh man, this is where he's going to press home to us that we have to do discipline even when it's hard, even when it hurts people, makes folks cry. No, that wasn't what she was weeping about. And that wasn't Dr. Hamilton's point. She was weeping with joyful appreciation for this church's high regard for Christ and His holiness. With such a high esteem, importance, and regard. She was weeping with thankfulness that the Lord had brought her into a church that took seriously the holiness of God and the care of souls, both of her own soul, but also of the soul of this excommunicated woman. She ended up pursuing membership in that congregation and being welcomed as a member, becoming a really active member of the congregation there. Now, you don't hear those kinds of stories often when you get together with a bunch of Presbyterians to talk about church discipline. Usually, accounts of church discipline are full of heartache, difficulty, and frustration. And we're going to get into that in a little bit. Anyway, I think that you've explained for us under the heading of the first mark just how having a high view of the Word as God's inspired, inerrant, infallible, authoritative, life-giving, and sufficient rule for faith and practice tells us about a church's regard for Christ as the one who issues the Word and decrees governing His church. But I want to ask about the sacraments. 
What distinguishes biblical administration of the sacraments from anti-biblical administration or administrations of the sacraments? First and foremost, uh, one distinction would be with respect to ordination. Uh, I do have a chapter in the book that just talks about the importance of ordination, because again, I think people in our day and age don't have that sense. I, I knew of many men in my ministry. I spent 22 years in the town of Kokomo, Indiana, and I was a church planter there, and I saw lots of churches popping up every year, and often the people who were leading these churches had, it wasn't that they just didn't have formal training, they just decided to start their own church. I, I, I was in the homeschooling movement and had a lot of good friends who just started their own churches because they weren't satisfied with anything else that was being offered. And it really shows a lack of regard for ordination that uh, we're not self-sent or to be self-ordained. Uh, even Jesus said that he was sent, <laughs> sent by the Father, and then he very carefully chose and sent the apostles who in turn as the church was being developed, as we see in the book of Acts, were setting over these congregations' uh, elders. And there's just this real sense where there's to be, a, to be an orderliness. So that would be first and foremost one way that I see often the sacraments being administered in an unbiblical way, that there's just no regard that these keys of the kingdom that God has given to the officers of the church are to be handled by those who have the right and authority, the God-given authority uh, to do so. They're not lawfully ordained. Right, they're just not lawfully ordained. I mean, the men, or increasingly, in more and more cases, the women being entrusted with the administration of the sacraments in evangelical churches are not lawfully ordained individuals. Drawing from the Reformation, there is another basic distinction of what is a sacrament, right? That's right. So then that's another way it could be wrongly administered, is just the fact that people are viewing things that aren't sacraments as sacraments. Of course, the Catholic Church had seven, um, and that's why the Reformers spent so much time working on that, so that God's people weren't confused any longer that, for instance, uh, marriage is not a sacrament. Uh, they, uh, you know, another way that they can be wrongly administered is that they're given to people to whom they don't belong. So again, they're to be given to God's people, to Christians, insofar as we're able to discern as officers of the church. And you know, one of the things that Jesus said as he gave the keys of the kingdom to Peter and the apostles is he says, you're going to have the authority of heaven, a God-given authority from heaven here on earth to open and close the doors of the kingdom. So that's why ordination is so important, is that we've got to make sure we have wise godly men over the church who know to open the door to the truly repentant, who have faith in Christ and give them all the privileges thereof, and who know to keep those doors closed to the ungodly or profane, or to take care of the matters if the godly, ungodly or profane are in the church, and that they know that sometimes that's going to mean that we have to remove some people from those privileges. So I think that's really important. And then again, I go back to the whole idea that... Um, it's really wrong to take the sacraments without true, truly valuing uh, what they mean to God's people, uh, to treat them lighthearted. You know, I know of places where even pastors will just be administering the Lord's Supper, for instance, telling jokes as they do so, or 
again, just opening it to any up to anyone who happens to be there. And they just don't really have any sense at that point of what this is representing. This is the precious blood of Jesus Christ that's being represented here and the life-giving impact it has on his people. And it's to be handled and treated with great care and prudence by the church. Or I think uh, we can be put under the judgment of God if we don't if we don't handle it properly. Well, that sounds scriptural to me. <laughs> First Corinthians 11. You call church discipline the difficult job in chapter 10, and you call excommunication the awful pronouncement in chapter 12. I, I think those are fair monikers. We've already covered why church discipline is so important for a group of people committed to glorifying Christ, protecting a congregation's purity, pursuing the salvation of obstinate sinners, but as we think of it as the difficult job, and particularly excommunication as the awful pronouncement, what do we need to bring to the table when we are called upon by circumstances or by fellow church members and even church officers to engage in church discipline? Well, when you were telling earlier, Zach, the the story that... uh... Uh, Ian Hamilton had talked. I actually listened to your interview with him, so I appreciated that. But uh, it reminded me that my first session meeting as a new intern who hadn't yet gone to seminary, I was going to do some intern work with uh, my congregation new to the Reformed Church, just a, a few years there. My very first session meeting was the excommunication of the man who had started the work in Kokomo and yet had committed adultery. And after many months of seeking his repentance. Uh, he kept hardening his heart. And I watched these elders with tears uh, uh, remove this man from the church. And the impact on me at that time was it, it circumcised my heart in a new way. It just set me apart. It just gave me such a heart for the church and for those particular people. And God ended up calling me uh, to be the, the church planter in that particular community. So um this is a really hard thing to do, but it's a very important thing to do. And if we're going to be involved in it, um, we really need to give the church a lot of instruction regarding it. So often when it comes to discipline, I think the people out there in the pews think that's the elder's job. If they're talking about it at all, they think that's what the elders do. And certainly the elders are to be involved. But when we all go to that most familiar passage where uh, the keys of the kingdom are referred to, where we really think about what to do with sin in the church. It's Matthew 18. It starts with the individual church member, that if you see your brother sin, you're not to go running to the pastor or do any other thing or gossip about it, but you have to go and speak directly uh, to that person, uh, the scriptures say, in private, and try to win him back from his or her sin. So it really talks about the need for instruction to help God's people to learn that that's their responsibility as part of, uh, of the church. I think then that means that we have to help people understand procedures. And a good Reformed congregation already has this all figured out for us because most of our Reformed congregations have books of discipline where it explains how to go through this. And so we need to familiarize, if we're leaders in the church, we need to certainly be uh, knowledgeable about our own book of discipline, but we need to help God's people at least have a, some working knowledge of uh, the procedures of taking care of, of uh, sinful issues, sinful situations uh, in the life of God's, uh, 
people. One other purpose um, that I would mention regarding discipline um, is that it's also for the reclaiming of the offender. I mean, we're doing this in the hopes that the offender will come back, even if it gets to the point of excommunication, that we're turning them over uh, to the world, to their sin, uh, even to the evil one, in the hopes that that awful pronouncement, that awful situation would eventually bring them to their senses and return them to the Lord. Amen. Amen. One of the points you bring up, and I think that you're drawing from Ken Sandy's Peacemaker materials, and I really appreciate it at this point, is that there are certain things that individuals need to learn to overlook in terms of conflicts that arise or offenses that pop up just in the course of human society and being in close quarters with other sinners. Someone's going to say or do something that you take as offensive. And even before you approach that, sir, that person, you need to look at yourself and say, am I being too sensitive? And am I able to overlook this? And thirdly, will addressing this actually be to pursue their good or to pursue my self-gratification? There's a lot of really good guidance on these questions in Ken Sandy's materials, and you've incorporated in your book uh, some of that guidance, some of that wisdom, uh, when situated in the context of church discipline for the sake of the maturing of the saints and the advancement of God's glory around the world and as a mark of the true church. Moving into chapter 9, you interact with complementary and competing paradigms for defining and evaluating churches and their activities. And, you know, again, to our listeners, this is one of the reasons why this book is so valuable, and I, I really press you to, to pick it up and, and have it as a resource for yourself and for others in your networks and your churches that, you know, may one day have to move away and find another church. There are some churches and church leaders that reference John 13, 34 to 35 to say that the only mark of the New Covenant Church is, quote, love, end quote. They leave it at that. Super open-ended, not particularly helpful in terms of giving us a clear picture. We most frequently see that in mainline liberal and evangelical congregations that are drifting into liberalism and apostasy. But a more popular diagnostic tool comes from a book that I suspect many of our listeners are familiar with. I have it on my shelf. I value it. It's, it's actually a great book. It's very helpful. It's Nine Marks of a Healthy Church by Pastor Mark Dever in Washington, D.C. Dr. York, how, how do Dever's nine marks fit in with the Bible's three marks that you explore in your book? Well, I too appreciate uh, Pastor Dever's works. I've read many of his books, and I readily acknowledge in my book that he uh, looks and sees historically the, the three traditional marks of the church and upholds those. Uh, but he does have this ministry called Nine Marks, and it makes people ask the question, well, he says there's nine marks, and you're saying there's three, perhaps, and so what's the difference? And what I would say is that uh, my interaction with him in the book is not so much to be critical, but just to be clarifying that he, he says that his book and, and the nine marks are the nine marks of a healthy church. So that's expanding beyond what the three marks are really doing, because those three marks are the marks of essentiality or of identification. So those have to be core, I believe. And then you can look at other marks. And so I interact with that, uh, look at his nine marks, and say, which, one of, which of these nine marks are these fits into these three marks of essentiality and which of them are different uh, qualities. And then my, in my book, I have a, a diagnostic tool. It really looks just like a target. Uh, 
and the bullseye are the marks of the true church. And then as it radiates out from there, you can have other types of uh, characteristics of the church, such as attributes of a faithful church. Or you could go out beyond that and think about uh, indicators of a healthy church. So for instance, one of the marks in uh, uh, Pastor Dever's work is evangelism, a, a church being equipped in evangelism. I think that's great. Churches should be equipped in evangelism. But that's really more of an indicator of a, of a healthy church. Um, you can be a church. We know plenty of them, sadly. <laughs> you can be a church and not be doing evangelism. And often I get to consult with congregations that are going through difficult times. They're not growing. They're dying. Maybe they're older. And they're, I, I find that so many of them are grasping for a solution. And they see what the church down the street or on the internet is doing and they go purchase the program or bring in the big speaker or whatever it may be to try to rejuvenate them. And one of the things I like to say is before you go grasping for the latest Christian fad or go looking at other churches, what you need to really do first and foremost is look in the mirror. Look in the mirror and remember who you are in Christ. I have a friend who ministered for years over in Scotland in a dying congregation and one of the things he went there and did was to reestablish the centrality of uh, the primary mark of the Word of God. He got the people really, he started preaching real biblical sermons, and he got the people not only just hearing God's Word, but making commitments toward obedience, and he held them accountable, and they really began to uh, renew themselves in these things. And then from that, they became an evangelistic uh, congregation. So we got to start with the central things and then move to these other things, all of which are important, but we have to make sure that we're maintaining their proper place. That is a really helpful point. One criticism that modern church growth gurus might accuse us of being is reductionistic. If all they consider about our subject today is our claim that Scripture tells us that a church has three identifying marks, preaching, sacraments, and church discipline, they might object with something like, are you kidding me? You don't even have prayer in there. You don't include fellowship gatherings, service to the poor. We are quick to respond by saying, hey, 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 we are not saying that those things are unimportant or even unnecessary, because they are all implications of what is commanded of us in Scripture. And some are explicitly commanded in the Scripture in various ways. We're merely saying that Scripture presents to us three identifying marks for a church that help us to evaluate whether or not a particular organization or group of people is in fact a church. They were never really intended to be the three, quote, how-to, end quote, steps to get your church up and running or successful or whatever. They're obviously necessary for being a church and a faithful church in the first place, but they suggest and lead to things like evangelizing your community and encouraging every member to do so and to serve the poor, because faithful preaching from the Word of God will instruct the church and the individuals that make up the church to pursue those tasks and aims that God has set before us for His glory. Dr. York, do you have any concluding thoughts for us before we wrap up? I might just say, if you don't mind, Zach, first of all, thanks again for having me on. But uh, also, you mentioned a little bit earlier about love. Yes, uh, and, yes. And, you know, Jesus did say in John 13, this is how all people will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. But the question is, is what does that love look like? And that love looks like, if you want to really see it present, you're going to see it in a place where God's word's being preached and uh 
heard by the people of God because that's the message of God's love. You're going to see it in the sacraments because that's like a wedding ring, a sign of God's love. And you're going to see it in people who care enough about you. Uh, the Father disciplines those he loves. So you're going to see it in a place where people care enough about you to help you uh, be formed into a disciple. And then if you were to wander, start wandering away, that they're going to seek your correction and reclamation uh, by Christ. Uh, so to me, uh, these marks are all about uh, uh, God's love uh, as expressed to us in, in, in the gospel of his son. Thank you for bringing that up. I barreled right through that earlier in my critique of those who hide behind love as a mark of the church to excuse their neglect of the three substantive marks given to us in Scripture. Your model is exactly what we should follow, and that's to say, yes, love is a characteristic of a faithful church, and it's principially expressed in these three things, faithful preaching of the Word, right administration of the sacraments, and careful application of church discipline. Now, before I hit end on the recording, I want to make good on our promise of details for a gift for two of our listeners. Dr. York and I both greatly appreciate your tuning into the podcast today, and so does Crown and Covenant Publications, the publisher of Hitting the Marks. In fact, Crown and Covenant appreciates your time so much that they have made available two free copies of Hitting the Marks to the first two listeners from the continental United States to send me an email answering this question. What are the three marks of the church discussed in this podcast? Yeah, I know, pretty easy, but you do have to have listened through the whole thing to know what it is we're talking about. Send me an email at zgroff at gpts.edu. That's just my first initial last name, zgroff at gpts.edu, with your answer to that question, as well as your mailing address and contact information. And if you're one of the first two people to contact me, Crown and Covenant Publications will get a copy of Hitting the Marks to your doorstep, thanks to the United States Postal Service, which is still open despite the shutdown of the federal Government, if you live in Alaska, Hawaii, or a country other than the United States of America, I'm sorry, but you are not eligible for this particular giveaway. The book is available as an ebook, however. To all of our listeners, the book is available through Crown and Covenant Publications online, Amazon.com, Reformation Heritage Books, and other Reformed booksellers, I'm sure. Again, I urge you to take up and read, and keep this book around as a resource for yourself and others. Dr. York, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us on the podcast. Again, thank you, brother. Thank you. You've been listening to a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information about the seminary, please visit www.gpts.edu.